this podcast starts with my voice. My voice is analog. It's a wave. But along the way, the preamp turns it into something digital. And it's through the magic of bits that you're able to listen to this wherever you are. Hey, it's Seth. And this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to confront the continuum. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hi, it's Bernadette G, and I'm here to talk to you about how you can become a better storyteller. Storytelling is not an art reserved for the chosen few. It's a skill that you can learn, just like the students who've taken part in the Story Skills Workshop have done. Actually, I had a story to tell that was really important for me, but also was going to be very, very important for people in the future. It's been absolutely life-changing for me to see stories everywhere and to see my own stories. I was surprised that the learning was as much in the giving as in the receiving. We got to not only learn about storytelling, we actually got to practice using stories in our everyday life. If you're ready to become a better storyteller, I hope you'll join us. I hope you'll check it out. Visit akimbo.com slash go for all the upcoming workshops. Go make a ruckus. 40 years ago, when Sony came out with CDs, they promised perfect sound forever. And people who were used to listening to vinyl were easily swayed. No pops, no crackles. A bit is either on or it's off. And it took a few years for most people to figure out that CDs just don't sound as good as vinyl records, at least until recently. Bits on or off, are the underpinning of the digital revolution. But it turns out we've been thinking about the world in digital terms for a really long time. Either that ball is black or that ball is white. Either you're able to be a three-star restaurant or you're not. Either you have talent or you don't. On or off, in or out, up or down, near or far. We are constantly putting things into categories because categories enable us to process ideas. Continua, the idea that it's along a curve, makes it much harder for us to make choices, to make decisions, to decide who's a threat and who's a friend. When Darwin wrote about the origin of species, it represented an existential threat for many people because what he established is that we are on a continuum, that we are not that different from the ape or the chimp, and we're not that far different from a penguin, that if everything started millions of years ago from some small single-celled organisms and evolved over time, we have to acknowledge that we're on a continuum with all the species around us. And at the same time, we have to acknowledge that everybody who is a human, is a cousin of ours. And there is a continuum out there, a continuum of humans. The difference between your DNA and the DNA of a chimp is less than 1%. And the difference between your DNA and the DNA of name any superstar that you like, Taylor Swift or Stacey Abrams or Milt Jackson, or I could go down the list of everybody who is ostensibly filled with talent, 
the difference is negligible. We couldn't make accurate predictions about your talent, about your place in the cultural hierarchy if all we had was a look at your DNA. And so there's this continuum that we are constantly confronting because human beings' populations are actually analog, not digital. Earlier in the podcast, I pointed out that CDs just didn't sound as good as vinyl records. But the fact is, if you listen to super high-res digital music today, it's quite likely it will sound just as good as a vinyl record would sound. What changed? What changed is the resolution, the number of bits, how many things on or off are crammed right next to each other to trick our brain into thinking about the world in analog terms. Because we are analog creatures, our eyes, our ears, our taste buds, our senses all work in a wave, not in bits. That what happens is stimuli come along like that scraping noise you might be hearing in the background, and maybe we notice it and maybe we don't, and then when it gets loud enough, we do. So we trick ourselves into thinking there was no sound and then there was sound. But of course, that's not the case. There's always sound. There's always something vibrating somewhere along our auditory system. There's always smells. There's always something showing up in our nose, but we don't notice it until it reaches a threshold. And the same thing is really useful when we think about talent or skill, that everybody is born with some level of an ability to learn things, to do things, to commit, to make a change happen. But only some people along the way decide to amplify that and turn it into a real skill, put in the practice, put in the hours, confront resistance, and get to the other side. Not only some people. Actually, all people do it, but only some people do it enough that we will notice them doing it. And where all this comes home is when we realize that we are constantly narrating our day. You know more about your life than anyone else. Only Jerry Garcia saw every Jerry Garcia concert that he played in. Multiply that by 10,000. All of the noises, all of the fears, all of the dialogues, all of the debates that you have with yourself all the time. We live inside only one person's head. And so we look at the people in the outside world differently than we look at ourselves. We all decided that we are one and only and everybody else is someone else. And when we look at the world through digital eyes, it's very tempting to put people into pristine buckets. This person is bad, this person is good. This person is dastardly, this person is craven. This person can be counted on, this person can be trusted. When none of it is true, we're all living on a wave. And so of course, at this point people say, but what about quantum mechanics? And I say, and what about quantum mechanics? Quantum mechanics is a super special case that applies to really, really, really tiny particles and can be brought up by philosophers and pop culture experts to describe a possibility in the real world, but it's not really true. The idea of quantum states is, of course, true. Either the culture has said you're a superstar or it hasn't that you're in the top 40 or you're not. But these are artificial constructs that we invented to help us put people into buckets. But we're not buckets, we're people. Normal isn't a person, it's a distribution. 
And so what we're doing is looking at the waves all around us, looking at how the deck was shuffled and deciding if the resolution gets high enough because we get enough bits of data, where, what quanta, what level we should put somebody. But that's often a mistake. It's usually a trap because people are on a continuum, including me, including you. And we get to decide if we're going to move up or down along whatever axis we care enough to measure, along whatever amount of effort we care enough to expend. That doesn't mean that you will ever be able to play the piano the way that Glenn Gould could play the piano. Because yes, we're a curve, we're a wave, but no, we're not all distributed the same way. Some people have enough inches to dunk a basketball and some people don't. Some people are wired to hear sounds, to hear stories, to be able to speak and engage with others in ways that others might not be. But it is a mistake, I think, to believe the culture when it tells us we have to be in a bucket, when it talks about talent and opportunity, when it says those people, those people are never going to amount to anything. Well, just because someone is born looking different than we are or is talented differently than we are or comes from a different country than we do doesn't mean that they are those people because we're all on a continuum. And what we decide to do with that, whether we insist on treating it like a digital thing that it's not or embrace the wave that's in front of us, including our wave, it puts a lot of responsibility on us. The responsibility to make things better by making better things by doing things that are difficult just because we can, because it matters. So that's a rant. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead? to engage in possibility. Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey Seth, it's Maria. Hey Seth, my name's Kyle. Greetings Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi Seth, Alicia from Charleston here. Hi Seth, this is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi Seth, warm greetings from Curacao. Hey Seth, my name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey Seth, this is Rex. Hey Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Two juicy questions this week. Here we go. Hi, Seth. This is Jacob from Barrington, Illinois, longtime listener and a huge fan of your books. My question entails elements about status roles, being a linchpin, and parenting. A little context. We're very fortunate. 
that we live in an economically affluent community and we have young kids that are just entering the school system. My wife and I are starting to get involved in various parenting and school groups and all the teachers and parents we've been meeting are amazing. All are very supportive, friendly, very involved with their kids' education. However, I've been noticing that there's this culture here, and I'm sure it's pretty common in other places too, where there's this sort of invisible impetus for parents to put these unusually stringent expectations on their kids to uh, put them on a fast path, almost to seemingly conform them into this industrial system from a very young age. Now, examples include like in, I've noticed five-year-olds getting enrolled into computer coding and math camps on weekends and hiring private tutors so they don't, quote, fall behind. Now, don't get me wrong. We involve our kids in extracurriculars outside of school, and I constantly push them to make sure they're being challenged. But I focus more on things like you teach and linchpin, where I put them in situations where they need to figure things out for themselves and develop a leadership muscle. But when I talk to other parents in the community, I sometimes feel a bit of an outcast. Some are even surprised that I don't put my kids through the ringer like they do. So my question is, how do I balance raising my kids to become independent thinking linchpins without being blacklisted from the community that has traditionally valued industrialism? So any guidance you can share for parents in my situation would be highly, highly appreciated. Thanks for this, Jacob. I can feel that you are so lucky to have your daughter and she lucky to have you and your wife as parents. It's hard to raise a kid. And what you are describing is not unusual at all. In fact, the very reason I had to write the book, the very reason that we are struggling to find leaders is because of precisely what you are describing. Good people, people who want to be part of community, push other people to have their kids fit in. They mean well. They believe that their kids will do better as socialized industrial cogs in a system. They have been taught to believe that to do anything but that is foolish or perhaps selfish. They are focused on the trap that status roles have set for themselves. They have put stickers on the back of their car announcing that they are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to send their kid to a school that is famous for its football team. All of this got built over the course of many, many years. It is one of the illusions of our time, along with issues around privilege, along with things revolving around the status quo and climate. All of these things are the result of years and years of indoctrination. And then someone comes along and sees, as you are seeing, that there might be a better path forward. Well, if it was easy to encourage your kids to follow a better path forward, everyone would do it. But sooner or later, the system wears us down. And some people respond to that by simply opting out of the system, moving way to the boonies and homeschooling their kids, hoping that that will be enough. But there's a difficult middle path. And that middle path acknowledges that we homeschool our kids every day, all of us, each of us, from 3 o'clock to 10 o'clock at night. That's one reason why the current structure of schooling is so unfair to people who are born without privilege, who are struggling to make a living because they're not home to homeschool their kids from 3 o'clock to 10 o'clock at night. But in those seven hours, more hours than your daughter is actually spending in classes at school, you have the chance 
to establish an approach, establish a set of questions, expected answers, to role model, to find ways to encourage curiosity, to realize that STEM is not about doing well on some math test. It is about not needing a math test to ask and answer difficult questions about math. Not arithmetic, but math. And we can go into a hundred of the details. My point is simply this. It's normal to feel the way you're feeling. It's not clear to me that you have to teach your daughter to be ostracized by everybody. There are plenty of examples of kids who have grown up to be leaders, to be linchpins, who are also connected and popular and part of things. But if you're getting yourself a baseball coach for your six-year-old or a tutor for your eight-year-old to help them with fractions, you might be drinking the flavor aid. And in fact, we've seen again and again that there's a better way to raise the kind of kids that we need going forward. And it involves teaching them to enroll in the journey, to fail on the way to being better, to ask good questions, to lead, and to connect. So you knew you were going to get a little bit of a rant, and there it is. Hang in there. You're lucky to have her, and vice versa. Hey, Seth, this is Chris down in Houston. Hey, I was watching your Nordic Business Forum uh, presentation this week and really enjoyed the presentation and admire the way that you're able to carry a stage presence, have very uh, enjoyable slides, as well as being able to entertain the audience that you're delivering to. And just wanted to get your thoughts on how you've been able to get to that point in your career um, any you know tips or suggestions you can give to those who enjoy public speaking but know that they have a long way to go and just really want to hear your thoughts on this subject. Thank you, Seth. Thank you for this, Chris. I have seen a lot of public speakers in my time, and the very art of public speaking has changed dramatically thanks to TED and thanks to YouTube because it used to be that the typical person saw one or two or three speakers a year, maybe. But now, if you want to, you can see 300 in just one day. So there's a style, and there's an expectation, just like The Tonight Show did for stand-up comics, TED, and the internet has done for people who do public speaking. But the biggest leap I have seen again and again to get from amateur to semi-pro is that amateurs are talking to themselves. Amateurs are giving a talk that they see as being authentic and truthful in which they describe things from their point of view to themselves. And that is a necessary step to the next step. And the next step is that we are speaking for other people. We already know what we're going to say, but they don't. I learned this when I wrote instruction manuals for Spinnaker Software in 1983 for the Commodore 64 and the Atari and other home computers. Because what I learned really quickly is if I failed, they were either going to hate the product or call us on the phone, and both were bad outcomes. What I had to do is find radical empathy and say, this person I am writing for, they don't know what I know. They have no clue what to do, and I do know what to do. How do I write to them and for them in a tone of voice they are eager and ready to hear? So what we're looking for when we give a talk aren't prospects, nor are we looking to defend ourselves. When we're giving a talk, what we're looking to do is find people enrolled in a journey to go where we 
are hoping they will go. But that will only happen if we go to them first, if we sit on their side of the table, if we think about what they need and want to hear in this moment so that they can begin to walk with us on this journey. Don't you think the wizard could help him too? I don't see why not. Why don't you come along with us? We're on our way to see the wizard now, to get him a heart. And him a brain. I'm sure he could give you some courage. Well, wouldn't you feel degraded to be seen in the company of a cowardly lion? And yes, once again, I have to reference The Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz, go watch it again and watch how Dorothy approaches each and every one of the people who go with her on the journey down the yellow brick road. She was a great public speaker. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.